Computer, initialize Holosuite. to another episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Perry. I'm your host, David. Tonight we're talking about Season 3, Episode 4, Equilibrium. Before we continue, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. That is correct, and as I say every week, you should find us and follow us because we are a good time. We give you a lot of great information about new Trek, old Trek, and things to keep you in mind and what to be aware of when it comes to all things Deep Space Nine. Like, for example, there was a panel recently featuring three of our favorites from Deep Space Nine, Kira, O'Brien, and uh, Jadzia. And they were all talking about how much they would love to return to Star Trek in some form or fashion. And there was also a lot of of great stories, a lot of great behind-the-scenes stuff that you also could have got to find out about as well. Um, And there was a link that was posted for that as well. So if you go to our Twitter account, you can find it and you can watch it. So one of the many, many reasons to follow us. Sounds good. Absolutely. Now, before we get into tonight's episode, there is a couple of things that we would like to take some time and mention. One, uh, that this is the third anniversary of the passing of Aaron Eisenberg, the gentleman who played Nog on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He died um, again September 21st, uh, 2019, and um, you know the Trek fandom hasn't really been the same since. You can look up a lot of different videos from him at um, various conventions or when he would just meet with fans or talk with fans um the various documentaries that are out there um in which they always talk about the kindness and generosity of the man and how much he really enjoyed talking with and engaging with um his fans as well so um a lot of great stuff about aaron out there and that there have been several tributes to him actually within the trek fandom since his passing I know that in Star Trek Online, they um, they named certain ships and space stations after him, and I think they continued his character as well in the in the game universe. And ah. then in um, in Star Trek Discovery, when uh, they moved into season four, they showed that there was a ship named after him as well. That so now that's officially become canon. There's a ship named Nog running around out there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, nice. I think it's yeah, I think it's called the USS Nog, and it's the Eisenberg class. So a great oh, way to wow. kind of give you a tribute to to both character and man. So wow, did they yeah. do that because he had passed? Like that was part of yeah, the that was part for... of the yes. And gotcha. they've done this for other characters as well, like uh, in the reboot series, the reboot movies with the um, uh, original Chris series Paul. characters. You know, Chris Pine and Zach Quinto right. playing Kirk and Spock and all them. Anton Yelchin, the man who played uh, Pavel Chekhov, he died after right. the first movie. And so I believe that they named a ship after him, too. I think it's like the USS Yelchin. 
So I think he died after the third one came out. But yeah, he got run over by his Jeep. Like he was in yeah. his garage or his driveway and he didn't put the brake on or something happened and the yeah, Jeep yeah, ran they, back over him. Yeah, they said it was like an accidental release of the <sighs> emergency brake. And he got that. pinned. Yeah, pretty it was. I liked him as the character. So I yeah. remember being like, oh man, I really liked him. Yeah, I really liked yeah. him too. I, I, surprisingly, I liked him. I, um, I mean, I didn't know anything about him before he was in that movie, you know. But then I had seen him, and after that, it was like, you know, isn't it weird how sometimes when you've never heard of a person before, never seen an actor or actress before, right? And then you see them in one thing, and then it's like you see them everywhere else. Right. And everything. Like, that's how it suddenly was for me. Like, all of a sudden, I kept seeing his face pop up in all these, like, smaller, minor roles from, like, early on in his career. Right. And it was just like, Never knew that was him. Yeah. Yeah, there's certain actors, and the names are escaping me at the moment, but there's one in particular I'm thinking of. Um, he's, one of the, he's one of the characters from Man in the High Castle, if you've watched that. Uh, he plays the Obergruppenfuhrer um, U.S. guy, because the idea is it's an it's a, it's a alternate history where the Nazis won. And uh, I forget the actor's name at the moment. But yeah, once you recognize his face, he's everywhere. Um, he did Dark City. He was in the John Adams HBO show. He's in this. He was in that. He was in The Illusionist. Like all these things that like I had seen before, but like watching the Man in the High Castle show, like he was main. Like he was one of the main characters, like the mm-hmm. villain character. And uh, whenever I go back and look at other stuff, I'm like, oh, that's him. I should look up his name real quick uh, while I'm thinking about it. Um, but yeah, yeah. As soon as you see someone's face, and you're like, <laughs> "Oh, yeah. I I knew that is." I just like he was in that one thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's literally how it was, and I felt so bad because it's like suddenly I was watching him and watching kind of this like career development and seeing him, you know, get bigger and better roles and being a better actor, and then to be like you're front and center on this, you know. This franchise movement here right. with with the Star Trek movies and everything, and then to suddenly have that all cut very short, you know. Right. And I and I often wonder if that's why there hasn't been another Trek movie. I mean, not to say that you know he was such a central figurehead or anything like that, but when you have a cast that you've put together to kind of launch this reboot franchise, and one of them dies not not as just unavailable because of another product or, or a project or whatever but dies i think that it it makes you hesitant to move forward and right. they, and ever since then like seriously since that last his last filming on that you know he um there hasn't been anything else they've talked about it it's been fraught with all kinds of you know communication issues and money issues and all kinds of stuff and this, i just wonder if there's just a lot of you know bad feelings because of his death that makes them not want to continue however subconsciously maybe they don't even realize that they're doing it that way but right um yeah yeah the actor i was thinking of was rufus sewell 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 yeah um just to be sure i'm saying his name but yeah anyway but and also in other sad Trek news to continue our theme at the moment, um, we must regretfully announce the passing of none other than Louise Fletcher, who played Kai Wynn on Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine. <laughs> she died today really? at the age of 88. And today yes. is uh, the 23rd for yes. us, September 23rd, recording this. So yes. uh, this should be coming out the 24th. So just yesterday for those who are listening to this for the first time. Yes. Wow, I had no idea. Um, did she 
just pass on old age? Yeah, she was just, yeah, as far as anybody is concerned, she just was, it was her time. Um, Now, Louise Fletcher, you know, yes, we love to hate her as Kai Wynn, you know, but um, she had a very long and productive storied career in, in Hollywood. I think that one of her, probably the most recognizable role for her was as Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest right. with um, Jack Nicholson way back in the day, you know? Right. So, I mean, she she has been acting since then. She has done several different, um, just several different movies and TV shows. There was another um, movie that she was in that terrified me as a kid, and it wasn't until years later that I realized it was her. Um <laughs> It was called Flowers in the Attic, and it's this movie about these, um, I think it's four children. Now, before I get into the the synopsis of this movie, I will say this. One, the movie terrified me as a kid, and two, because of that, I never watched it again. So I'm basing all of this off of memory from, like, I think I was nine when I watched it. But it's essentially this movie about these four children who are locked away in the attic of this home because their mother doesn't want to deal with them anymore as she's trying to move up in life and become like a socialite or whatever. And so having children from a previous marriage, engagement, whatever, um, would hamper her ability to do that. So she's locked the kids away and she's slowly starving slash poisoning them in an attempt to get rid of them. Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) And I... Don't really remember what role uh, Louise Fletcher was in that movie, but it, I don't, she wasn't the good person. That's what I remember the most. She was not, I think she was the person that was like in charge of care of the kids while the mom was out socializing. And in particular, she would make them these, um, these cookies and she would put powdered sugar on the cookies, but the powdered sugar was also laced with like cyanide or something. So she was feeding these kids slowly and poisoning them over time. It was a terrible movie. Again, scared the crap out of me as a kid. Yeah, and I've, I've never watched it again. In fact, there was a long time when I thought I had made that up. That I'd made that movie up. And like you were so traumatized and yeah. had to be a, a bad memory. Yeah. Right. And then my and oddly enough, my sister was talking about it one day. And I see I was like I told her, I was like, I thought that I made that up. Like I didn't think that was a real movie that they would make and let people watch. But <laughs> yeah, no. Apparently it was. Right. Yeah, wow. but um, yeah, she. I mean, she has been have been doing things for a very long time. You can obviously still catch and relive her some of her great moments here with Deep Space Nine. We will be bringing up Kaiwen several times throughout the course of our um, our show, so right. you can be prepared for that. But yeah, it is it is sad to me to mention that she passed. Um, as much as I hate. Kai Wynn. The character, yeah. The character of Kai Wynn. Right. Louise Fletcher plays her expertly. She right. is world-class. Like, that is one thing about Deep Space Nine that I think that they really excelled at more than any of the other Trek shows. They got some phenomenal actors to play some of these roles. Yeah. And it's not to say the other shows aren't great and don't have great actors, but there is just something about the overall casting of Deep Space Nine that is just it's different. It's just on another level. These guys are great. And well, she was definitely one of them. Well, I think it definitely is part because, you know, Deep Space Nine, because we're having a continual story, unlike TNG, we can really invest in these actors playing these characters over multiple episodes and really giving us 
a more three-dimensional character. Uh, not that TNG has th- uh, two-dimensional characters, but they don't have as much time to flesh them out. And so, yeah, to have her able to play <laughs> not Vedic win, <laughs> Kai win. Yes. Um, yeah, that gives her a chance to, to flesh out the character. And I've only seen her in, I guess, three-ish episodes now, three yeah. or four. Um, but yeah, I have no doubt that she's going to continue to be a, a presence uh, on the show as the character continues to be a thorn in the side of all of our characters on various issues. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, it's one of those that, you know, as as these shows continue to have popularity and the actors are still around and doing different things, you know, we hear them talking about bringing back characters and so forth. While I wouldn't necessarily want to see Kai Wen uh, come back, part of me would also, I guess what I'm saying, yeah. I don't want to see it, but I do, because I love to hate the character so much. But now that uh, Louise Fletcher is gone, I don't want to see it because I don't want to have anybody come in there and try to, you know, redo or put their own twist on a character that she just so expertly delivered in every scene that she was in. She was just, she was great. She she brought something, you know, very. I don't want to say just nuance, but it was like a very dynamic portrayal of this character who, you know, despite all that she's gone through and suffered, you know, she is still very, you know, ambitious. She's very um, powerful. She's not, she's not a, certainly not a broken person, which is kind of what you're supposed to expect for someone who has been so thoroughly traumatized, which all the Bajorans have. We have to remember they were coming out of the occupation in the beginning of this show, you know, right. in season one and beyond. And they're still trying to deal with the ramifications of what all of that means. And we're seeing right. the political upheaval, the religious upheaval, all of this stuff. And she is a person who is desperately trying to hang on to, or not necessarily hang on, but I guess achieve a level of stability through power. Right. I think it would be the best way to describe how I view her anyway. Gotcha. And so while you may not agree and you may not like what she does, but at the same time, I think you can, if you watch her long enough, you can kind of get it. You know, it's not, it's not the best, but it makes sense. Well, when you're the one in power, it makes sense that you think that you're the one necessary to keep things going. (laughs) Well, let's keep in mind that she was not the one that was in power. When the show first started, we had Kaiopaka. She right, was right. one of the many Vedics. I believe that when Opaka, when it was apparent that Opaka was not coming back, we'll just say, right. I think that most of the Vedics, including uh, Kai Wen, saw this as an opportunity to secure themselves in a new role and to right. steer Bajor the way they wanted to, right? Like not, and not in that kind of open arms way, but more in the we have an intense fear of outsiders and we want to kind of keep to our own as much as possible. Very right. conservative mindset. Again, kind of understandable considering that an alien invasion, an alien invasion force landed on your planet and brutalized your people and your planet and your resources for 50 some odd years. Yeah. Right. Kind of yeah. makes sense. You don't trust outsiders. And then here she is. Sure. She's, you know, they show up another alien group. The Federation rolls in. And in a very short amount of time, their Kai dies or goes missing. Right. The person that they're told to believe in, protect, help is another alien, you know, Commander Cisco, 
the emissary to the prophets and and uh basically moves the whole power base from Bajor to a Cardassian space station, the home of their former oppressors. Right. So yeah, I mean, what would you do in that situation? You think that you would, you know, kind of buy into this whole? Oh, they say they're nice. I'm sure the Cardassians <laughs> said they were nice too when they showed up. We're we're here to help you, and then right. they, you know, brutally raped, murdered, and pillaged for fifty years. So yeah. Again, um, I think that if you watch her long enough, you can understand why she does what she does. You still don't have to like it, but you can at least understand it. Right. Yeah. So. That's true. But, as always, I like to say, we are not here to talk about all these other things, even though they are important. We are here to talk about Equilibrium. The um, This is the fourth episode, right? Yes, it is. Yep. That's right. So would you like to give our recap? I can. Uh, yeah. Let's go ahead and do it. All right. Um, so, at the end of this episode, Commander Sisko is in his quarters with Jake cooking dinner for Bashir, Kira, and Odo. When Dax comes in, she has uh, been uh, doing some stuff on the station, and she arrives uh, to see them cooking, looking very forward uh, to the meal. Uh, and while she is sitting down, she goes to the side and sees there is a keyboard instrument uh, that Jake says is his, but he never really got any good at it. Um, he still has it, but he was never very good with it. Dax sits down and starts playing on it, and as she starts doing so, she starts playing a, a melody that she can't quite recognize. Like she just, she just like has to keep playing it, keep working at it. Um, later, she is still humming this tune while she's playing chess with Cisco in his office, and she's clearly distracted. She's humming and she's not playing the game very well, and Cisco. You know, tells her, are you sure you want to make that move in the chess game? And um, she's like, of course I want to. She's being aggressive. And he, he makes a move, and it's a check. He p- puts her in check. And she's like, where did this knight come from? Um, you know, it's it's out of nowhere. He's like, look, I've been asking you to stop humming, and you keep humming. You're clearly distracted. And she's like, no, no, you're just a cheater. Curzon knew you were a cheater. And she upends the board and storms out. And... She goes to the replomat to drink alone, and Kira comes and uh, says, hey, what's going on? And Dax is like, hey, you know what? Uh, I know Cisco sent you here to figure out what was going on and to apologize on his behalf, but get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. And Kira's like, what's going on? Like, She's like, Dax, relax. And Dax like gets up, and Kira grabs her like to say, hey, like, don't just leave. And Dax is like, get that hand off me. If you don't let me go, you're going to regret it. So Kira lets go, and it's like, okay, whatever. Um, so Dax leaves, but as she leaves, she's, she starts to like have some sort of hallucination where things are darker in the hallway uh, on the promenade, and there's a figure up on the balcony, and then the figure is behind her, and this figure has a robe and a, and a mask on, and they remove one of the masks, there's another mask beneath it, and Dax manages to escape and bump into cork uh that brings her out of her this vision she's had um she goes to the infirmary and bashir confirms that um something is going wrong she uh she apologizes to cisco for her, her behavior and she uh is told by bashir that her um symptoms are 
possibly very bad. She's having some low isoboramine levels, which if right. they fall below 40% could mean that her symbiote is rejecting her body and she would need to you know, give up the symbiote. So Jadzia would die and the Dax symbiote would have to be put in a new host. Um, now, her levels haven't fallen that low yet, but Bashir, wanting to be cautious, is like, you know what, this is a very serious issue. I don't know what this thing that happened to you was, but let's go back to the home planet of the Trill and go to, um, to, to them and the professionals there to make sure we get you proper treatment. Um, so they, they do that. Um, Cisco is like, I've always, you've all, uh, Curzon always wanted to show me, um, your home planet. So this is a great opportunity. So they get in, which I am assuming is the defiant, you know, the yes. ship that we thought was destroyed, but I guess it wasn't. It's, it is the defiant. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Bashir is trying to do some research about, uh, her condition and, but Dax comes in, she can't sleep. And so they talk for a little bit, and they talk about her time as an initiate. Um, so she spent three years as an initiate at the um, this facility, which at the moment I'm forgetting the name of, where she learned uh, or went through some rigorous testing in order to be accepted as a symbiote-compatible um, host. Um, it was very intense. In fact, she was originally rejected, and she actually was one of the only people that was allowed to come back to the, um, the, the program and was approved the second time. Um, but she's having trouble sleeping, um, and so Bashir, you know, offers to let her sleep in the room with him. Uh, she asks for the lower bunk because apparently Curzon once fell out of a tree, and uh, as soon as she lays down, she immediately falls asleep for whatever reason. Um, so now they're on the home world, and she is being tested. Um, and Doctor Rinhall is the trill that is doing her testing, and Rinhall knew Jadzia. And so they talk and they reminisce, but um, she does uh, say, "Yeah, the uh, the levels were low, but here's some here's a, uh, some things to help stop that from happening. Uh, we want you to come back tomorrow and just see, you know, what might be going on." Um, back on the Defiant, uh, Bashir um, is uh, trying to uh, let's see here. I'm trying to remember here. Um, oh, that's right. Dax is uh, has another vision. On the Defiant. So right. we think she's recovering, but no, she has another vision. Uh, she's back on the promenade. I'm sorry, not back on the promenade. The figure on the promenade uh, is there again. And um, they, she's like, she's being attacked by two other trills in this vision. And then when she comes out of the vision, it's Bashir that she's attacking, uh, that she's trying to defend herself against. But it's not Bashir. It was uh, a vision of something else. So back at the hospital... They're trying to figure out what's going on. Why have her uh, levels still um, dropping? They, they're still dropping. They're still not very good. What's going on? And uh, Jadzia notes that these attackers in hallucination um, are from the the facility that she, um, you know, got the symbiote from. Right. But they were from uniforms from over a hundred years ago. Because again, she has long memory because of her uh, symbiote Dax. So Dax knows and recognizes the uniforms are not the current ones. So it wasn't a current – it's not like something was happening in the present time that she was attacked in the present day. She was having a memory of something that happened in the past. And so they're trying to figure out what's going on. And so they decide to go visit the Guardians, a group of Trill who devote their lives to caring for the symbiotes who are not paired. 
And so they go, and while they're there, they get to see some symbiotes kind of swimming around, and they meet one of the men who work there, a guardian named Timor. Uh, and he explains, after talking with Jadzia, um, that this must be um, memories that she's experiencing, and that there is something wrong with her, um, and that this imbalance between host and symbiote is, um, means that there's actually a previous host that's the problem. Mm-hmm. It's not her, Jadzia, that's the host problem. There's a previous host of the Dax symbiote um, that had memories that are repressed, and they're now coming out, and they're causing these problems. Um, now, the music that Jadzia had been trying to figure out, they, the computer is able to finally determine where it comes from. And it turns out it was a, a trill from 86 years before who had written this music. Um, but his history is blocked when they go to search for him and uh, what what happened to him. Meanwhile, Jadzia has yet another vision, again, of this mass figure. But this time they're on the Trill home world. They're in the facility and the masked man kills um, a man sitting at a desk. Um, and when she, uh, goes to remove the mask, she sees the face of this Joran Bilar, the, uh, the composer of the music that she's been, uh, hearing. Now she doesn't quite make the connection just yet of who, who is who, but when, um, she sees the face of Joran Bilar, uh, I'm sorry, it actually was seeing the face of him that caused her to have the hallucination. So she, seeing the face of Joran Bilar... Uh, on the computer screen triggers her having this memory and she um, is once again have to be put in the hospital. So her levels are falling even more. They're now at 51%, which means that they basically have 48 hours to determine what's wrong with her or they're going to have to go ahead and pull the symbiote out of her and Jadzia will die for Dax, the symbiote, to survive. So Rin Hall, the doctor, starts telling them to prepare um, for surgery. Meanwhile, Cisco and Bashir visit Timor, or Timor, the guardian who said that the, the memories were from a previous host, and now he's scared to talk. He doesn't want to talk anymore. Uh, he refuses to answer questions. And so now they're very concerned. Like, why is he suddenly, you know, previously he was very helpful. Now he's scared. He doesn't want to talk. So they go back to the Defiant, and they research Joran Bilar. And to summarize very quickly what's going on is that Joran Bilar was a... Uh, a, they, they, they talk to the brother of Joran Bilar, who says that Joran was a composer, but he was also very violent. And that um, Joran did kill someone, or he, he believes that someone was killed by his brother at some point in the past. And even though his history has been erased, um, he believes that, yes, the, the vision of someone dying is accurate. Uh, that makes sense to him. But... Um, they don't, he doesn't know why anything else would make sense. So it turns out, from what we can gather, Joran um, was a potential host candidate in the past, in the very distant past, 86 years ago. And so when Cisco and uh, Bashir confront Dr. Rinhal, they, realize, they explain uh, to her, they feel, realize the truth. Um, Joran was actually paired for about six months with the Dax symbiote. But because he was a violent personality and because he killed someone, uh, he was not allowed to keep the symbiote. And I believe he was killed. Yeah. After, I mean, like, I mean, taking this, the Dax symbiote out of him killed him. But 
the yeah. reason this is important is because the uh, ability to have a violent individual paired for up to six months with the symbiote does not compute with the apparent only four to five days that a failed host would be able to survive with a incompatible symbiote. So this shows that the people in charge of um, pairing the symbiotes and the host together actually know the truth that about 50% of the trill are actually compatible with symbiotes, but because there's only a limited number of symbiotes, they drastically overstate how, uh, how badly a bad pairing could go. And so this story about um, Duran was suppressed and the memories were suppressed in all of the subsequent uh, hosts, which turned out to be Curzon and Jadzia. And uh, that's why these memories are now surfacing. Uh, apparently, it would seem that when Jadzia started playing that uh, keyboard, that somehow triggered the memories to start bubbling back up. So Cisco says to Rinhal, look, I don't want you to kill my friend. You're going to do everything that's necessary to bring her back. And if you don't, I will reveal the truth to everyone. And so she agrees to uh, allow Dax to bring back the memories of what happened to Joran. Uh, I mean, Cisco basically says, look, let Jadzia make a decision about her own life. And so Jadzia goes back to the pools where the, the symbiotes live and grow. And while in there, she has a vision of Joran and um, she basically invites Joran back to herself. He, uh, right. he says, you, you know me. And she says, I do. Uh, she kind of hugs him in this vision space yeah. and basically that allows her memories to be uh, reintegrated. And so, yeah, that's basically that's it. I feel like they it. hit all the high points. I mean, there's yeah. a lot to go through, but there's a lot and it's a lot to unpack, especially because we're getting a lot about trill lore here, yes. trill, trill history, trill backstory. Um, now I do want to point out real quick that uh, Duran was not killed by the symbiosis committee. Okay. Okay. His brother tells the story that Duran committed a murder. He killed the doctor. And right. then he was and then Duran was subsequently killed in his attempt to escape from the trill equivalent of police. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Got it. So that's what happened um I, that's what happened there. And I and I think that like you could kind of say well, you know, that maybe they told him a story or whatever, but uh, to me that that would be the most logical following through of the process here he he murdered someone in his attempt to flee his captors he was killed whether that right. means that the police killed him whether he i don't know he fell out of a window and died i don't know but i'm just saying that's the story is that it was shortly after the murder he committed he was later killed so right yeah gotcha. um but yeah, I mean, you you hit the high points for sure. Um, there are there, like I said, there's a lot to unpack here, um, and we're gonna get to all of it. Um, want to go all the way back to the beginning Sounds and talk good. about talk about my favorite scene, <laughs> and it's of course it's right there at the beginning, and it is where they're you know Cisco is cooking food for everybody in his quarters, yeah. and the oh, man a fish right a fish. Deal. Yes, a fish. he's making he's making. Um, did they say that it was was it red snapper or sea? No, I think it was sea like bass that. and red beans, something like that. Um, well, and but, beets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The beets being the, the most beets, important part. <laughs> there was there was fish, cream spinach, and beets. 
that was and the Odo is sent is asked and, to continue whisking that souffle, which is hilarious because like you know Cisco is real good at it, and then for some reason Odo, Odo is, decides to spin the bowl, yeah, like, maneuver the bowl around the whisk as opposed to the whisk in the bowl, and Kira definitely gives him a little bit of a hard time. Uh, for his uh, difficulty figuring it out, and Odo is all also being all like, "I don't understand why you humanoids have to eat so much. Your your preoccupation with food, um, and yet he's really invested in wicking that." Well, he he says he says that though I don't have to eat food, I've always been fascinated with you humanoids' preoccupation right. with the preparation of food and stuff. So now he's getting ah, like right. firsthand lessons. So we we see Cisco is just you know he's got another an elaborate setup. The man's got the hot plates. He's got multiple, you know, cooking utensils and pans and all the rest of it. The man is clearly ready to uh, throw down in the kitchen, right? Yes. And this is actually the first time that we ever get this bit of backstory on Cisco. Before this, there had been no mention of anything like this. And now we have found out in one fell swoop that one, he is a great cook. And two, that his father runs a restaurant in New Orleans. Right. So, is his father still alive at this time? I guess I. Yes. I thought. Okay. Yes, okay. his father right. is still alive. So uh, yeah, so he's and you can see that he obviously delights in cooking meals. The man is, you know, dancing around a little bit. He's flipping up the salt shakers and everything else. He is definitely yeah. in his element. Right. Loves doing it. So um, I loved seeing it. I loved the very relaxed atmosphere. Everybody. There were some questionable um, attire, I will say. <laughs> like, Kira is wearing the same outfit she wore when she posed as a hooker when they tried to rescue Lee Nollis back in uh, oh, season man. two. I don't remember what that looked like, but okay, uh, I'll take your word yeah, for it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did. I was just like, why are you wearing that? Like, that that was my first thought. I was like, why are you wearing, like, like, I understand that you're not in your uniform anymore, but I mean, like, you don't have other clothes i don't know you know and then um and then bashir and uh jadzia are the only two in well i guess you count, count odo they're the only ones in uniform you know cisco right. is also dressed down jake is uh, still in something questionable we're just going to leave it at that you know right. but yeah but also conspicuously absent o'brien there's no o'brien in fact there's no o'brien this whole episode that's true i'll well, mention it that I mean, he was did weird. have a pretty important role last episode. I mean, not not super important, but he had some he had some uh, some story in his in his uh, for him. Yeah, but this was mainly a Dax episode. Finally, True. yeah, it's been a while. And, and you know what? I think this is you know this is kind of the recurring thing that we've seen with them already. Is that when it's when it's one or the other, when it's heavily focused on Dax or heavily focused on O'Brien, the other one is not in the episode that much. So if it's a lot to do with O'Brien, then we have very minimal Dax or no Dax. If it's a lot of Dax, there's minimal O'Brien or no O'Brien. And I think it's because, to, to the most for the most part, they kind of serve the same function, despite yeah. despite one being you know the the science officer and the other one's the engineer. They right. do kind of solve. They they fit well, that. Yeah, when, when Dax shows when Dax shows up in Cisco's quarter, she says she's been spending six, six hours installing something on a pylon, like. It sounded like an O'Brien type task right. that she was doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, while we're talking about the whole Cisco and food, um, you told me a, a fun story this week. Something arrived that you uh, got. Ah, finally. yes, yes. Yeah. 
So, um, a long time ago, <laughs> um, several, several months ago, I ordered the uh, official Star Trek cookbook. And um, I actually forgot about it because it was so long ago. Because when I ordered it, it was actually like, you know, on the whole pre-order thing. They hadn't quite finished up with licensing or whatever, so they hadn't released it yet. Well, I pre-ordered it thinking it was going to be like, you know, a couple of weeks, maybe a month, and then I would have the book. No. It took... I, if I go back and backtrack, I would not be surprised at all if this was every bit of like a maybe, year, a year. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, yeah, I just completely forgot about it, but it finally arrived and it was so surprising because, you know, I ordered it through Amazon and, um, all of a sudden I just got this notice and it was like, your book has been delivered. And I was like, what book? I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> So yeah, I go and I and I pick it up, and um, it has got all of these great recipes from Voyager, Deep Space Nine, some from Next Generation, you know. But of course, Deep Space Nine is going to be featured the most because it has the most food. Now, keep in mind, this book, even though it's called the official Star Trek cookbook, this book um, only reflects those shows because at the time. Um, when they were, you know, when she was, when the author was actually putting all these recipes and stuff like that together, shows like Lower Decks, Strange New Worlds, Picard, Discovery, all those did not exist yet. If there was one that would have existed at that time, it was most likely Discovery, but it right. would have been maybe in its second season. And even right. and so there wouldn't have been much to go on there. So that's why this one only features um, um, the shows that I said, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Next Generation. Now, no, it does not have a um, recipe for blackened redfish, which is what they're making in this episode, nor does it have an, uh, a recipe for beets. However, <laughs> I would strongly encourage those of you who don't like beets, like our good doctor, to give them a shot because they're actually quite delicious. In fact, I did not like beets and then I watched this episode, and it made me curious, and uh, I started making things with beets, and I love them. I still eat them to this day. They're yeah. great. I, everything from just, you know, uh, giving them a quick steam, you know, to soften them up a bit and then just chopping them and throw them in the salad. Or my absolute favorite way to eat beets is after you cook them, you know, again, dice them up and everything like that. And then to put them in a strawberry smoothie. And it, and that's it. It's okay. strawberries, strawberries uh, milk or almond milk, depending on, you know, or whatever milk it is you drink, you know, I don't know what everybody's, I don't <laughs> know what everybody's lactose. Yeah. I don't know your lactose situation. So I'm just saying strawberries, your milk equivalent, and then some, um, uh, beets and that's it. And I love it because like beets have a natural sweetness, but they also have this nice, um, it's like a very pleasant earthiness to it that I enjoy when you mix it with strawberries and uh, it tastes great to me. Like if, if you already like a strawberry milkshake, add some beets to it and I bet you anything you'll love it even more. It just, it enhances the flavor. So that's the best way. Also beets are good for you health wise. They will help to uh, regulate your blood pressure. So if you're a person who already has like high blood pressure or borderline hypertensive or anything like that, eat your beets. It will help bring that down. Gotcha. Eat those strawberry smoothies, baby. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of great, a lot of great things from Beats there, and I would never have known about any of it if it wasn't for Commander Cisco making Beats in this episode. Never would have, <laughs> never would have been curious. So, 
Yeah, it was funny. As soon as I started watching this episode, you had literally, we had, you and I had just talked like the day before about uh, you getting the cookbook, and you were saying that, oh yeah, Deep Space Nine is gonna have a lot of cooking. Cisco loves cooking, and then bam, here's the episode that like <laughs> proves that very fact. Absolutely. And you know, and you know, they have the new show now, Strange New Worlds, and on there, you know, Captain Pike he cooks a lot too. And I have to admit, I've been a little bit upset with Star Trek fans because they are going on and on about the Captain who cooks, right? And I'm just like, first of all, Cisco was doing this 30 years ago, so calm yourselves, calm yourselves, all right? You know, Pike makes a stack of waffles, and you guys are ready to lose your minds. Man's over here making fish. And beats and all the rest of it. Come on. Credit where credit's due. And I have to say, part of me is surprised that more people don't cook. I guess when you're so used to just food just popping out of a replicator, it just makes sense. It would be so easy just to say, give me whatever. But I feel like there would be – I mean, if Pike is a character who likes – I guess he's getting the raw materials out of the replicator – and then mm-hmm. cooking them is that how it works on the show? I think that's kind of how it's assumed is that there is you know there's this process by which he is getting the yeah raw materials and then he's whipping it up in his right. in his quarters. Like milk, for example, you wouldn't want to keep a whole you know refrigerator of milk on the you know lower decks. You would want to just you know replicate it real fast, and you got yeah. milk and you can make waffles. Um, so yeah, I, I find that uh, fascinating that more people don't take advantage of that on some level, like. I don't know. Pers- just... Personally, I think that's, I mean, to me, that is the perfect way to use a replicator. It's not to make the full on yes. straight to plate meal. You, know, you, sh- you shouldn't be pushing a button and being like, give me, you know, steak medium rare and it's you're done, done but right. maybe it just gives you the raw steak so yeah, that you can then, right, and, uh, then you can yeah. cook it, season it, prepare it the way that you want to. I because... guess there's also the fact that if you screw it up, you're, you're, you screwed it up. But, a, a but see, that's the whole thing with the, out. well, that's the whole thing with the, with the supposed replicator technology is that it all based, it's based off of um, matter rearrangement. So they're breaking it, it down. Could still, it could still undo the bad steak. Right. So like if you, if you burn the steak, you just put it back into the replicator. It breaks down the molecular components and then you just reorder a new steak and do it again. I have to say, now that we're talking about replicators, I'm surprised that replicators don't come into the plot more often for some reason or other. Like, Well, you know, I mean, they were, yeah, you're right. I mean, they've been featured not they across don't, not, uh, a lot yeah, of shows. They, but they're kind of the one technology that, has... right, they're kind of the one technology that we always count on to work. And then when they don't work, it's more of a trivial inconvenience well, it's, it's yeah, not it a major there's something wrong with the ship the ship yeah. has a power outage or or there's something like in the ship yeah there's a problems. yeah there's a greater problem if the replicators don't work there's a greater problem elsewhere it's not the replicators themselves and you know what that's true across all the treks next generation did that um um deep space nine does it i'm not going to say anything because i don't know if we well we have we've gotten there We've already seen that happen when they had was, the um, horses or something. No, right? they had that aphasia virus, and no oh. one could understand each other. And it was oh. because Quark was replicating things out of those sabotage That's replicators. That's right, and the virus was triggered yeah. by him doing that. Yeah. yeah, and then you know, Voyager has their whole bioneural circuitry, and it feeds into the uh, replicators, and it was a whole thing involving cheese. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But again, it was it was indicative of another problem 
in the ship. It wasn't the replicators themselves having a problem. And that seems to be the continued um, trope. But yeah, I mean, it's like the replicators otherwise are deemed, you know, they're just, they're indestructible. They are the dependable technology. Right. So, yeah. But um, I like the Cisco cooks. I like that we get to see more of him cooking and not just everybody always at Quarks or the Replimat or whatever. So, um, yeah, again, great scene. I loved it all. Right. Um, Jadzia, later on, another favorite scene of mine is uh, when she's in the Replimat. This is after she has blown up with Cisco and then playing chess. And she goes to the Replimat and she's sitting there and Kira comes up and tries to talk to her and they kind of have their bit of a spat there and uh, she goes to stand up to walk away and Kira grabs her and she's like get your hands off me before I do something I'll regret right. it's like nice nice subtle threat I yeah. I think I enjoy all the subtle threats Cisco does it uh, Dax does it here great scenes <laughs> to me great scenes to me yeah I, if I can go ahead and just say it now I, it is one of the critiques I have for this episode is that this this version of Dax that's aggressive and, and hostile only is in a few scenes, but then she like goes to Bashir and Bashir realizes she has a problem. And then this aggressive version of herself doesn't ever reappear. She doesn't ever have a, a relapse into yeah. this other personality, like taking over every time that there's a problem, it's a vision. She sees a vision and then she's back in the hospital and she has a vision. And she's back in the, in the hospital. I wish there had been um, a moment where Dax kind of goes crazy. Like there is the scene where she's being attacked by the two orderlies, she thinks she's being attacked by two orderlies, and then it's Bashir that she has her hand on the throat of, but that's um, a vision, a memory, not a her losing control of her personality moment. Right, not um, a, not an emotional outburst like what we see here with her and Kira. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I get that. Now, you said earlier that you were surprised that this was the Defiant that they were on when they went back, when they went to the true home world. Um, yeah, the Defiant wasn't destroyed. Right. Uh, it was severely they, damaged. Yeah, that's how they were explaining it. And that's how they got back to the wormhole. Is yeah. the, the Defiant was still in orbit around the Odo's changeling people's homeworld. And that's how they yeah. were allowed to leave. Yeah, that's right. So, I, so yeah, I'm glad we still have it. Because I like, I like Siso as a captain, man. When he sits in that chair, he looks like he belongs in that chair. Baby. Right. Like, like he... Yeah, I, it's one of those. It's one of the few times I feel like they definitely designed a set for one actor, and and it was and it was definitely him. He right. looks like that's like that's where the show should have been all oh, along. I know. And you I know? like how it turns, like it swivels, like you yeah. Know, the, the, the the captain's chair on and TNG on the Enterprise is static. It doesn't turn, right? If I remember correctly, it doesn't. It's not swiveling. I think it. It moves a little bit, but it's not it's not a full pivot and swivel the way Cisco's chair on the Defiant is. No. Right. And like Cisco was like had his hands like clasped together and like he looks like he's he could like brood in that. And right. I, I just feel like, you know, Picard isn't a brooder, but that sh that chair also doesn't lean toward brooding, but this chair and Cisco, they could brood nicely yeah. in that chair. <laughs> if you were to, if definitely one of the situations where if you were to swap the two captains, right, and put them on their respective bridges, they would definitely stand out. Like they don't, they don't make sense there. The yes. Defiant is made to be, you know, it's it's primed, it's ready for a fight. It's in, right. it's a much more aggressive 
posturing right. ship than yes. than the Enterprise. Yeah. And and uh, you know, even though the Enterprise is very powerful, um, it's just it doesn't invoke the same kind of attitude that we get from the Defiant. And I don't think I don't think it would have worked with Picard in the Defiance chair. Yeah, yeah, I, I I think that's actually really great though. It really does show how different they are as characters, and also makes me wish that we'd had more scenes of them together. I know we're it's not going to happen, I guess, but no, I mean, oh, well. I, I, I hold out hope, I guess, that somehow, some kind of way, you know, that they bring Avery Brooks back and he does something. Is I don't there know, a book? But... I don't know if you read enough of the books to know. Is there a book where the two of them have you know to what? together or something? Or? I honestly don't know. I know that there are so many books, and um, I was trying to make an attempt to read through a lot of them. And the problem that I had when reading the books was a lot of, especially the ones for Deep Space Nine, a lot of the ones that start out the series were written either right before the series started or right as it was just as the first episodes were airing. So very quickly you got into a point where you were reading a book that technically hadn't aired yet, right? It wasn't a part of this. It wasn't a part of the series yet. So the more you read, the greater departure in characters you got, because suddenly the way that characters ended when you watched the show in season one, if you were reading the books, they did not, they did not match. They didn't make sense. Right. So it was kind of hard to continue to follow. So I gave those right. up because I, I just didn't like that. That's uh, what I figured. That's probably. Yeah. Yeah, I figured that might be a problem. Yeah. But um, some of the older books that are featuring the Next Generation crew, those actually hold up quite well. And I think that's because Next Generation was obviously, uh, it was an episodic show. So the mm. books follow that episodic format. You don't necessarily have to have read the one before it to follow the next ah, one. This unless, is just an episode of the show that right, got aired, basically, kind of thing. Yeah. Right, unless it was, in particular, you know, a part one, part two kind of book. There were some really great standalone um, books in the TNG series. Um, man, I actually want to go back and find some of those now, because I, I enjoyed those immensely. Um, <laughs> we're not going to get into all that, because books will take us down a whole other, other thing. You know, True. But yeah, but um, so we now know about another uh, Dax host, right. um, and uh, so I mean she's had eight now, or Dax has had eight now. So yes, we're at Dax. we're at eight now that we have incorporated Duran back into the fold here there's eight but up up until this moment we did not know about him so she was always saying seven and it's one of those things that um i always found very interesting because if you remember again going all the way back to that very first scene when dax comes into cisco's quarters and she finds the piano keyboard she starts talking about how none of the hosts ever had musical talent talent or ability and she refers to all of them including jadzia and she does it in this very distant kind of disconnect Hmm. so it the way she phrases it you could you could say it's just a it's a slip of the tongue it was a quirk it was a uh poor delivery of a line whatever but to me it always stood out because it kind of reinforces the fact that the the blending of host and symbiont is so complete that 
to think of any one of them individually doesn't work. You have to always speak of them collectively. And that's kind of how she does it here in the scene. And then it also makes sense why when we're later figuring out what her issue is, why it is such an issue. Because you have all of these voices that are present in this individual. And for some reason, one is being suppressed. That cannot happen if you are to have a fully integrated and realized self. Right. So that's why she is suffering from this neurological disorder. Right. And I mean, it makes sense on a story level, but I, I was a little frustrated by the idea that it just kind of came and went in the sense, you know, it yeah. started this episode. It was resolved in this episode. Um, well, I'm going to tell you that uh, you don't know that because you've never watched Deep Space Nine, so you don't know. <laughs> okay, fair enough, so fair enough. Yeah, so, but, okay. I, yeah, well, I mean, assuming that that is correct and that, yeah, actually more will go on, then, um, but... That will be the, the one I'm... spoiler. That will be the one spoiler I will give you an answer to. Okay. This whole thing with Dax, the many lives of Dax. This is not the only time we see it. That's okay. all. I, that's all, all right. I say. Okay. Well, I guess I'll hold my criticism then a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Um, In fact, actually, I'll say one more thing. The next time that we see it, to me, way better than this time. Way better. Okay. Okay. So, all right. Well, I guess then I, what I would say in is, is just going back to that criticism I had about, you know, I felt like she, her personality changed briefly and then we never got to see that again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what I would say is then I don't want this to be a one episode thing. And then, you know, from now on, we act as if this never really happened. You know, yeah. I want her to be a musical person now on some level. She has some musical talent and, um, that's because her previous, one of her previous hosts had that, um, if that happens, then this episode will will make sense. Uh, if they go back to just a you know monster of the week and forget about this part of this character now, then I would say it's a mistake. So I guess we'll have to see how. Well, goes. and as you said earlier, you know, D Space Nine is great for the sense that we move away from episodic television and we have a more serialized storytelling and ability to really stay with the characters and let them develop and be more complex. So you've already pointed out one of the selling points of the show and I'm just telling you know, give it time. Okay. Very good. Very good. Um, Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do want to say that one thing about this episode that can be a bit of a bother is the fact that Cisco very, very closely Violated the Prime Directive. Or, or very, very nearly violated the Prime Directive. With the and, whole, I'm going to tell, oh yeah, I'm yes. going to tell the He threatens the, the doctor. He's like, I'm going <laughs> to tell everybody. If you don't let, if you don't save Jadzia's life, I'm going to tell everybody That's that you've been lying to them. point, yeah. So, technically violated. I mean, it I wasn't, guess... it's not even technically. It, it, it would have been a full-on violation if he had done it, if he had revealed the big trill secret that would have been the true violation but the fact is the man blackmailed her (laughs) (laughs) i guess the counter argument would be that if if the trill are already integrated into the federation does that mean that the federation can therefore with with impunity on some level ignore the prime directive I, i always assumed the prime directive was intended for developing cultures but you're saying the prime directive should also apply to Developed so the way that I've well. always interpreted the, the prime directive, the way I've always interpreted it, it was basically, as you said, yes, they are not going to interfere with the natural development of a species, right? 
Right, right. And it's kind of who's to say what the natural development of any species is. So by and large, we're just going to say we're not going to interfere. Throw our hands right. up and that's it. And then once the species has collectively reached a point that we that sharing certain knowledge and technology and so forth will not be a detriment to their society, it's at right. that point that the Federation will then reveal and introduce itself. Gotcha. So, I mean, that's a very simplistic view of the of the Prime Directive, but I think that that kind of sums it up. Right. So, now the true are members of the Federation, so obviously that means that they already checked that box. They already reached a point where their cultural and their technological advancements and everything else were at a level that they could be included in the Federation. We don't know how long that the Trill have been a member of the Federation, but we know that it's been a while. I mean, we saw right. the Trill in Next Gen. Here they are prominently featured in D-Space 9. So let's just go ahead and ballpark it and say that the Trill have been a member of the Federation for, let's say, 100 years. Okay. Right. So does this mean that the Federation, before giving them membership, literally reviewed every single cultural whatever <laughs> of the people? Right. Most likely not. They probably right. just hit the broad strokes. Are you imprisoning people unjustly? Do you have slavery? Do you have like certain things like that? And if as long as those major things were checked off, you basically have you solved your world's biggest problems? Right. And if the answer to that was yes, I don't think that they looked any further than that. Right. And so Cisco later now uncovers that they've essentially been lying to everyone about yeah. Yeah. how yep. many people can be joined and, and all this other kind of stuff, you know. Um I yeah, I just don't think it was something that the Federation ever paid attention to. And if right. you and also think about it, if you find out something so unusual as you have a symbiotic Join species, right? And yet everybody planet-wide globally is in agreement that this is a rare, special, beautiful thing that's honored in our society and protected and whatever else. And also, no one's being hurt. That there seems to just be a supreme benefit of basically the experience of several lifetimes. No one is catching a, a random disease that kills them. No no one and also no one is being forced to do it. If you want to be a joined individual, you have to sign up. You have to pass tests. You have to right. go through this process. And of course in the in the key part is it has to be voluntary. Right. I think that it would be another reason that the Federation didn't look too closely into it. The entire planet is in agreement that this is a rare, wonderful and special thing and right. people volunteer for it. They're not right. going to stop that. Right. You know? Fair enough, yeah. So I think that that's what, I think that would have been why, and I, and I think that's also why it would classify as a prime directive <laughs> violation. You're totally when, right. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree now that you pointed out that, yeah, Cisco definitely broke it on some level. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, 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 it would not, I mean, it, it would be, it wouldn't be outright flagrant at first, but the damage he would have done to that society upon revealing the truth of their symbiont status. Right. And he would have done so as a representative of the Federation, having discovered his information as a representative of the Federation. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. He would he would on some level need to be reprimanded or, or said, Hey, you can't do that. He would have so. no, he, I, I, he would have lost I believe he would have lost his commission at that point. Oh, 100%. he would have he yeah. he would have been responsible for destabilizing an entire civilization. Right. 
single-handedly in one fell swoop, all because of an officer under his command. And the ultimate sacrifice, you know, with Star Trek, that's always been kind of drilled out there, is that the officers, when they sign up to be a part of Starfleet, is you must be prepared to die for the principles of the Federation. So if there is something that could save your life, but it would it would ruin a civilization, you have to die. Like, right. that's basically it. Now, they get away from that because Federation officers are supposed to be so otherwise, you know, incredibly intelligent and clever. So whenever it comes down to that, there's always another solution that they're able to find. But ultimately, that's what it's supposed to be. You right. have taken an oath to uphold these policies and principles, and one of them states that, yeah, you, if the option is ruining a civilization or your death, you must die. Right. And so, yeah, he would have been 100% responsible. And, yeah. yeah, I think they would have cashiered him right out of Starfleet. Right. Yeah, the fact that he um, he threatens to tell everyone, but but doesn't because you know the, he's, he's using it as leverage to get Jadzia's life saves Jadzia's life. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I feel like this is another reason why I was a little frustrated this episode. Like Jadzia doesn't, we don't get her version of how she thinks about this truth. We don't ever hear she we never she's unconscious when this truth is revealed. So we don't really get yeah. to see her express her opinion on the subject of, oh, should we reveal this information to the culture, to everyone else? You know, um, you're right. And you know what? I, I've often wondered if that's because they didn't tell her. Because well, they when, have to because she then went and got – No, the, they didn't have to. All they had to do was tell her what she needed to do to cure herself. The fact that there was oh, the ability for everybody to be joined, they didn't have to tell right. her that. No, you're right. Okay. All right. They could have just said, yeah, we had some sort of experiment with this one host and it didn't work very well. And so we... I mean, they didn't even really have to tell her that. They could have just told her, we figured out what the situation is. Here's what you need to do to solve it. And well, that's why she told goes... told her that this host, that, that what's-his-face had to be reintegrated into the into the personalities right but i'm just saying they would i'm saying they would have told her all of that but the the telling her the way in which they got that information they did not have to tell her right right yeah you're you're right that's that's true um i would say that if cisco doesn't tell her that like he's not being a very good friend (laughs) frankly Uh, uh, yeah, to... I would I would say that's true. I mean, he's not being a good friend by not telling her this thing that basically that your culture is a, is lying to you. Well, but you could also say that he is being a good friend because she obviously really loves and enjoys Trill society. She talks about Trill a lot. She even when sure. they were when when they got back to the uh, defiant, and they were like, "You need to go and rest. You need to go to sleep." She was like, "No, I could be taking you guys on this tour. We can go here. We can do this." She obviously enjoys her people in her homeworld. Knowing that about her, I mean, yeah, it seems like kind of a crappy friend thing to do to not tell her this truth, but it could also be a good friend because he knows how much she enjoys her people and well, that telling goes, her something that like that. That goes what I was going to talk about. Of yeah, well, I've talked about it before. The noble lie. Yeah, the noble lie. You know, telling a lie to for the quote-unquote benefit of society um and this is an example of that and i in general i always feel like the noble lie is always a failure like that's the that is usually the the truth that if they had revealed the truth behind the noble lie that would have been better you know the the dark knight into the dark knight rises plot line of 
you know, revealing the truth is that, you know, Two-Face, Harvey Dent, wasn't the, the hero that he was supposed to be. Um, again, I don't think The Dark Knight Rises does a very good job of, of following that plot line out, very well, uh-huh. frankly. But anyway, um, yeah, so I, this is another example of a noble lie being told. And uh, I, that also leads into me. The, the, the thing that I find just kind of frustrating at the trill, and this is just me trying to think, figure out how the trill work, is, uh, is the idea that the trill are not – it seems like it, it's, it's an artificial pairing between the symbiote and the host, which is just curious to me because they like, again, it's a surgery that has to be done, which is how we've seen it done. So maybe the, you know, the show writers are stuck with that's how it was done in like the episode on TNG. And so now we're having to hold to that version of events. Maybe that's what's going on. But for me, I wish, I wish like my, my, the thing I'm thinking of is like a marsupial with a pouch. You know, for the marsupials, the pouch is for their newborn. Uh, the newborn is born, but then moves into the pouch and then grows in the pouch. But I'm thinking, like, if the trill has some sort of pouch where a symbiote would naturally belong, and therefore, in the natural course of events, like yeah. in the evolution of the two species, that's how they came to grow together. There was already in the host trill a place for the symbiote to belong in a natural way, as opposed to this artificial way, which we see again, the whole point of this episode is the idea that the, the people in control of the pairing are telling this noble lie. So that part of the plot wouldn't work if there was a way to naturally pair with a symbiote. But I just feel like that is just a flaw of explaining the trill as a species is like, have they well, always had to artificially pair them off? And how long have they been doing the artificial pairing? And who's been in control of the pairing? And all, like, there's all these questions that I that so you're up for me right. So now you're right about that. Like the I think the main question would be how long have they been doing the surgical implantation? Because right, exactly. it's made yes. clear it's made clear that the trill body cavity does have a natural place for the symbiote. Right. Exactly. So yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. so why all of a sudden do they need to surgically implant it? That's a good question. Now, that could also be explained by the fact that we know, even this episode says it, that there are very few symbionts. Um, yeah. We don't know why there are very few symbionts, but we just know there is. So, I mean, this is all, of course, 100% speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if the story of that was there was some kind of natural disaster that separated the trill and the symbionts from each other for a very long period of time. So right. much of a period of time that evolutionary on the, on the evolutionary scale, the trill basically developed, they still developed the pa- the, the space, the cavity for the symbiont, right. but the natural opening that they had for it disappeared. Right. That, that would be the explanation, but I feel like that's not the like we've never had that officially said to us. Right, I know so, that we haven't. I know that we yeah. haven't. But I'm I'm just saying I think that that would be the the story that they would go with because it would also because it explains it to me. It's easy. It's obvious. It explains so much like why all the symbiotes are in caves and the caves are you know underground or whatever. So I I would think that um something must have happened to drive them underground. And then, and then, and even then, maybe they weren't always underground. Maybe that, whatever that natural thing is, maybe there was some kind of tectonic upheaval on the planet, which shifted and then forced them 
And that's and that's where the separation occurred. And it wasn't until however many eons later that the Trill then burrowed back down underground and found the symbionts again. Uh, that's a lot of. I mean, that's a lot of of time that has yeah, to happen for that ifs. kind of right. right. Yeah, yeah. A lot of jumping to speculation, but I mean, obviously, it, you know, that's a that's a a writing guffaw there because they're like, oh yeah, they clearly have this internal pouch for this thing, but how do they get it in there? Right. Like no one wanted to answer that question. So they're like, oh yeah, we just cut them open. Well, wait a minute. Is it na- like you're saying? Is it natural or not? Because you know, and maybe that's what the testing is that they do on the Symbiosis Commission. It's not so much to see if you're a compatible host, but to make sure that you have enough space to hold a symbiont when they cut you open. You know, you right. they might they might like like maybe at one point, as I speculated earlier, right? Maybe at one point these the symbionts and the trills were together. Then right. there was whatever cataclysm that split them apart. Right, and then over the countless eons or whatever, that pouch sealed up naturally on the trills, and, right. and of course that cavity was starting to shrink over time, d- disappearing over time as well. Right. So in a couple of centuries or a couple of more, you know, thousands of years, millennia, whatever it is, um, they won't even have that pouch anymore. They won't even have that space anymore. So the testing that they do is to ensure that there is still enough space and an ability to connect the symbiont to the host. And that's why it doesn't really matter if you are a good person or a bad person. They still got to test to make sure you got enough space in there and you don't die. Right. Yeah, it still is 50%. That is still only half the population. So your version of what the explanation is would make sense if the show would just go there and tell us. Right. (laughs) But I feel like the show's has abdicated that responsibility of telling us what goes on so far. I mean, maybe they'll tell us later, but no, they don't. And even in discovery, when they go back to the trill home world and have a whole another trill thing going on, they still don't explain it. And, um, yeah, another missed opportunity to kind of give us definitive answers. Now, I don't know if there's a reason that they refuse to give us answers on this thing. If they just, you know, I mean, it's not even, you can't even say it's because they don't know. It's like, of course you don't know. This is fake. It's all fic- fiction. Make right. it up. I just sat here right now and made up two different explanations as to why it could yeah. or could not have happened. So, yeah. Maybe here's the one I would come up with. Something like uh, the hosts would originally, when they discovered the, the symbiotes, they didn't, like, implant them into a physical pouch. It was like they would put them on their head. Like, they would carry them around on, like, a like they would make a clothing that would have, like, on their head. And like that was somehow close enough to let them have some sort of connection. And then this surgery is an artificial area in the body that they have been working into the host people for a long time. Like over time, they have been artificially creating this place in the host person. Like for example, you know, Riker was able to host a, a, a symbiote for a time, so maybe it like yeah, but it made him incredibly thing. sick, and it also bulged out of him, it right? Because he didn't have the spacing, so but it that's bulged exactly out of him. what the, the the professionals that are they're working out the kinks of making it so it's more and more of a um, yeah. That's how I would explain. I, it. I'll do you yeah. one better, grosser. Okay, <laughs> that originally the trill used to catch and eat. The symbionts. Yeah. Like we would catch fish. Right. And then also like sometimes when you catch a fish and you eat it, if not properly prepared, you get a parasite. And so that's how it was eventually discovered that these 
symbionts could do extra things for you because yeah. they got into your body. You know how we have, or we don't have, but there's a parasite that um, it eats away the tongue oh, of the yes. fish and, and takes fish. the place. Oh, yeah. I've seen those pictures. It's disgusting. It is. It's awful. <laughs> But, but something similar. Something similar. They ate it, and it got in their body, and it ate whatever was in that cavity and took the place of it. And in and in return, oh, so exchange the exists for a real reason. But yeah, over time, the parasitic version of the symbiotes, like yeah, take okay. it over. Yeah, yeah. And so Damn. now, and so now, yeah, like in, in in exchange for you incorporating the thing into your body, is you get the. You get the extra memories. Instead of getting a, a tongue, that's actually a little bug. <laughs> yeah, this would also explain for right. extra memory. <laughs> well, this would also explain why there are so few symbionts because you have to eat several of them before this happens, right? Because I mean, you're not gonna miss, you're not gonna poorly prepare every single one. So they were probably <laughs> hunted to near extinction before somebody made the connection that we the symbiote gave them artificially. The, yeah, yeah. I have to say, all these explanations, I feel like. Would have been great if we just had one. We could have worked with it, but I feel like the show is like, ah, who cares? Ah, too bad. Um, well, I wonder how many of these things that are inconsistent on all these shows, right? Especially the you know the first five shows, Next Generation, the original series, so forth. I wonder how many of these inconsistencies, when they realize them, the writers and production teams, everybody's like, who's gonna care in thirty years? Little did they know, right? Yeah, and that's what I feel like. Half of these things are, you know, or uh, when like makeup and lighting isn't correct, they're just like, ah, oh, doesn't matter. This is all going to be on like VHS. It's terrible anyway. <laughs> and now we've got digitally remastered, and they're picking up on every flaw, every whatever. Oh, look, Worf's forehead isn't properly attached on the side of his face. We can see where it's flaking up in the corner. <laughs> yeah. So I just wonder how many things are like that. Right. Yeah. Well, we've just come up with several interesting. Side trill lures, yeah, which mean nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think all of them would have a fascinating, uh, like just coming up with like a, a fan theory story about all that would be. I have fun to admit, I'm kind of into the whole they had to eat them first. I mean, honestly, I mean, my original theory was that like part of this episode revealed that the symbiotes, you know, in that pool they like mate and like. Mm-hmm. My original freaked out theory of how they reproduced was they, the host trill gives up the ability to reproduce more hosts. Like it's only they, you know, two hosts that host the symbiotes. When they mate, they actually produce more symbiotes. That was what I. Oh. Yeah. You. <laughs> I know. I know. Right. So your version of the parasite in the mouth is just another version of that in some ah. sense. <laughs> well, aren't we disgusting? So Yeah, yeah. Don't read books about parasites, people. There's some nasty stuff out there. That's, that is true. Like, I mean, it, I, and I wonder how much of that goes into things like this, too, because I'm sure they just don't expect people to know certain things or for certain information to become knowledgeable or whatever, but... Yeah. Or become widespread anyway, but yeah, I mean, we we study all these kinds of things all the time, and that information gets out there, and so it's just like we try to make connections to better explain and understand where these ideas came from, and it's like, okay, well, we know all about parasites, and you're telling me this thing did that? Yeah. Ugh. Actually, that reminds me. Um, you were just saying that how you know uh, Riker it was bulging out of him. It also bulged out of the original Trill host too, 
there was yes. an opening scene where like he like takes his shirt off and he like looks down at himself and talks to himself and you're like what's going on and he like bulges out so yeah but he was it's sick like, no he, but he got killed remember he got killed in the in the he was the, the negotiator guy and like oh, one right. the negotiation yeah. he and he was killed. calling that's right i didn't like him he kept calling her dr beverly i found it annoying <laughs> i didn't like him yeah i forget the character's name his odan that's right yeah oh that's the name of the episode too yeah and that was the first design of the trill when they had those very prominent forehead rolls that they got rid of because when they decided that Terry Farrell was going to be a trill, they were like, uh, she looks too good. We're not covering that up with. And I, I have to say bumps. in this episode, she looks lovely. This whole season, she looks lovely. Yeah. I love long, thick hair. And I don't know if that's a prop that she's wearing. I doubt it. I imagine that just, she has lovely hair, but like when it's in the ponytail or anything else, just, while I know that she does have long hair, I do still think that was some kind of prop. It just it didn't look natural, in my opinion. But I, it um, does look, I don't know anything about prosthetics and whatever else. It just yeah. looked weird to me. So I just always assumed that it was some kind of wig, prop, whatever. I wouldn't you know? be surprised, honestly. I mean, to be just for consistency's sake, even. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I think that later on in the shows, uh, it's all her hair. You know, once they kind of latch on to what her signature look is going to be, I think that that does, that is her hair at that point. But I think here there was some extra that was added in and it just didn't do right. Right. But you're right. She, she looks great. Um, I love the scene where, you know, she's laying down on the, on the bed and you, they show her feet and you see the spots on her feet. So, um, (laughs) you know, you kind of get the answer to the question, how far down do the spots go? All the way to the toes, baby. She got, she's got them. I guess I so. didn't pay attention to that scene, but whatever. I did. <laughs> so there. Ah, toes, huh? That's crazy. No. no. Yeah, you know what? I realized when I said it. I realized when I said it. Um, no. That's why I pushed it. That's why I teased you about it. Oh, goodness. Uh, I, no. But uh, apparently, I do have a thing for spots, so... Provided, provided you're yeah. not sick, you don't have like TB or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think those are different kinds of spots. <laughs> yeah, they're the kinds. Those are the kinds you stay away from. Leopard spots, yay. Yes. TB spots, no. <laughs> oh my goodness. But overall, what did you think of this episode? Um, I guess I've said it so far. I, 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 I feel I was glad that Dax was our main character again i was frustrated that so many of the times she was unconscious just like in season two around this episode you know that one guy comes to steal the dax symbiote and he she's unconscious for a lot of the story even though she's the focus of it and so i like i said like she had an interesting start where she her personality was being affected and then that quickly went away we could have learned more about the trill physiology but instead it was more about the the trill social system so i feel like it i was glad to have dax and this was an episode that had a lot of potential but i do feel like it it missed out on some opportunities okay okay yeah what do you think um i mean i will agree and i I will say this as much as i enjoy jadzia with you i have been reanalyzing the character um because 
I want to understand, like, if my like of her is, like, where it comes from. Because so far, as you said, her she hasn't shown up much in in the season. So it's just like, I want to kind of pinpoint where my like of the character comes from. Is it just after the course of the full run of the show? Did I just have a deep appreciation for the character overall? Or is there a particular definitive moment or a couple of moments, an episode or two, whatever it is, that makes me really like the character? Um, I like her here in the in the way that like before we knew what was wrong with her, the way she's you know kind of challenges Kira. Right. Um, I like that we get to see her be not always the kind of serene, confident character that we've kind of come to know. Like that's how she always is in the background. She's very calm. She's very much in command of the area that she's in but she's not really doing anything to kind of step forward and then we got to see her foundation shaking a little because this is a very internal problem and she's not understanding even where to begin to fight it so um i did like seeing that i love and i also love this episode because i love anything that gives me background anything that gives me lore on characters worlds any of it i i love it um we found out so much about the Trill and Trill Society and the caves of Makala, which is where the, you know, the symbionts live. And um, one thing I didn't like was the way that we talk about Curzon in this one. Like, I felt like what she was saying was a lie when she when she challenges Cisco about cheating at chess. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, and I was like, I don't think that Curzon would ever said that. And, it's, and I remember thinking Well, that. I imagine Curzon might have had it passed through his brain like, oh, he cheated. But it was like not a serious thought. And then for Jadzia is overplaying this thought of I yeah. knew you were cheating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going. Sorry. But I just I just remember thinking when she said it that Curzon would never have said that. And I and I laughed because I was like, we never even talked to Curzon. We've never seen Curzon. And here I am defending this dead fictitious character that we never see. <laughs> yeah, so. it does it does feel though, like just because of Jadzia that he actually was like we have a sense of who he was. Yeah, we yeah. I feel like I feel like defending him on some level too. Like I get yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, certainly Cisco would defend him. So, right, yeah. and so we get we get a lot of these little moments, uh, you know, in this episode that I just again I really enjoy. I love seeing Doctor Bashir uncomfortable with beats. Um, it just cracked me up for some reason that this doctor who should know the health benefits of vegetables and pe- yeah. just vegetables in general, and he was just like, uh, no. <laughs> and, he, and like, and he didn't so much look like where he was repulsed by them, but almost like he feared them. And I was just like, man, like, what's wrong with you? Do you have some kind of medical condition that keeps you from eating them, or what? <laughs> so yeah, he. Um, I, I forgot to mention it. I, you bring it up, but she reminds me that was a great scene when uh, Jazia goes to him in the quarters on the ship as they're going to the drill world, and she says, "I have a fear of doctors because of her history of uh, becoming an initiate." And uh, Bashir tells the that he 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 knows what she feels like when she when he was a boy, he felt like doctors would, like if he didn't do something right, the doctors would actually like, kind of curse him with being sick. Yeah, they would concoct an illness and make him sick. Exactly, and how he uh, as he grew up, he decided he wanted to learn everything they knew. He wanted to be on par with them, and then when he actually became a doctor, he just wanted to help people. Mm. And I like that moment because. Bashir is that character who all of his endearing qualities are almost entirely the fact that he's this really committed doctor. Like he has so many quirks that are like, 
he's kind of annoying to O'Brien and stuff like that. But every time he talks about why he's a doctor and what he does and his commitment, he's like fully there. Yeah. He's so earnest. He's so into it. And you're right. Like it's, it's when he reaches his peak annoyance in other things, he suddenly switches into doctor mode, doctor friend mode, really. And he's so loyal and he's so into being a good doctor and a good friend and a good officer and all this stuff. And you're just like, Oh, well, no wonder we like him, because for a minute there, I wanted to punch him in the face, and now I just, man, yeah, let's go have lunch, man. That's, that's cool. Let's <laughs> let's go. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it works because obviously he wins over a number of them, and they, you know, tolerate him more, right. you know, as as things go on, and him and uh, O'Brien seem to have established a friendship there. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it works. But yeah, I just overall, I like this episode. Could there have been things they did? Better, sure, but I think that's going to be true of pretty much every episode that we watch. But right. um, overall, for what we got and the amount that we got, because I mean, there's a lot to unpack in this one, as we've just discovered. Um, I still think this is a pretty good episode. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I mean, it's not a bad one. Uh, it, certainly, I would say it has its issues, as I just explained, but um, there it's, was nothing terrible. It's not like I hate it or anything. It's no move along home. No. Not at all. <laughs> I could rewatch this one without complaining. <laughs> well, I think we're going to have to have a special anniversary uh, for Move Along Home. Watch it You're going to have to hold me down <laughs> uh, Clockwork Orange style to watch that one again. Well, well, speaking of anniversaries, we have our own anniversary of sorts in the uh, Yeah, in this I month. forgot to mention it. Yeah, yeah. We, we started recording a year ago in yeah. September. Yeah. Shortly, what was it? I want to say it was around like maybe the was it the first week of September? Yeah, from what I remember from um, looking, you know, I listened to the episodes on Apple Podcasts, and I think it's early in September that our first episode comes out. We have our episode zero, which came out in uh, the the month before in August, but yeah. truly started in September. Well, and uh, yeah, thanks for sticking with us, guys. Whoever's out there listening in the ether. <laughs> and as a special treat, we do want to announce at this time that coming up in two weeks, October 2nd, so on October 2nd, we will be doing a live episode of the Fire Caves. It will be on YouTube, and of course, we will be putting out all the links on the various social medias leading up to it and everything else. So you can find our YouTube channel and go ahead and subscribe now. And uh, then just tune back in on September 2nd for the very first live episode of The Fire Caves. Now, for those of you who just, you know, don't do uh, social media or don't like YouTube or whatever the situation may be, don't worry. We will still record the episode, of course, and then we will release it at its regularly scheduled time the following Friday, which would be the 7th. Okay, so you will still get to hear the episode and all that. You just won't get to see the handsome faces behind your favorite podcast. So, <laughs> so just uh, mark that on your calendars now. And again, we go ahead and announce the time. If we're doing a day of the second, should we say 7 uh, p.m. Central Time, something like that? We will actually circle back to that because we have, again, two weeks. We have another episode that okay. will be coming out. So next week, we will also announce the time for that as well. That gives us plenty of time to get any last-minute um, logistics out of the way, including the time. 
Facebook broadcast. Got it. Okay. Good. All right. So great. yeah. So again, all you need to know for right now is October second, the very first live episode of the Fire Caves will be available on YouTube. So stay tuned for that information and make sure that you join us. But, as we say every week, um, it's been great talking with you all about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, please be sure to find us, like us, follow us on you know the various social medias, Facebook, uh, Twitter, so forth and so on. You can find us as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. And you can listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts. I happen to do it on Spotify. David, as you just said, does it on Apple. So, there you go. Until next week, guys, take care of yourselves. Thanks, guys.